0: At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week, and while a lot of the fun facts we stumble across make it into our articles, there are lots of other weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman.
1: I'm Amy Schellenbaum. And I'm Claire Maldarelli.
0: So on The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week, we start by each offering up a little tease for some kind of fact that we've picked up in the course of reading, writing, reporting, wasting time on Reddit, you know all the things we do in our jobs, and then we decide which one we absolutely have to hear more about first. When we've all had the chance to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. And now, you can also vote for your favorite on Twitter and Facebook. For example, last episode, we actually had a tie among the editors present, and thanks to our online poll, I was declared the winner. So I think the polls are great. Fix. (laughs) (laughs) Amy, it's your first time on. Why don't you give us your tease first?
1: Okay. So, imagine you are on family vacation. You're living it up on a cruise ship. You are probably wearing matching t-shirts, buttering your croissants, and shoveling 24-hour soft serve. You're a modern-day Caligula. You're eating six meals a day. <laughs> so is everybody else around you. And do you know what this means? It means you and thousands of other people on this boat produce a lot of poop. Hmm. You look around, and you realize the sheer amount of feces this on this boat. And it's dizzying. <laughs> and you have one big question. Where does the poop go wow that's my
0: teaser well you've just raised the teaser to an art form (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Claire how about you what have you got for us this week
1: women are better than men in one
0: crazy sport ooh Ooh. so my fact is about uh, people spending like a century using something that they knew was toxic and putting it Literally everywhere. Cool. scared. I'm scared. <laughs> I'm scared. <laughs> Amy, your poop teaser was just so magnificent as a teaser that I think you, you have to go first.
1: Yeah, you really killed it. Okay, cool. So, even if you do not understand the appeal of a cruise, and like being on a boat with thousands of other people, and this boat weighs thousands of tons... Uh, and you're on it for several days. Even if you don't understand that, you have to be kind of amazed or maybe disgusted by like the logistics of the cruise experience. I mean, if you look at the world's largest cruise ship, it holds 9,000 people, which is more than the capital of Vermont. That's crazy. Wow. So they are entire cities set to sea. I've always kind of been fascinated by how giant cruise liners work. I mean, how do they feed so many people so much food? It's just really an absurd amount of food. <laughs> and this is just one of my many questions. So I reported out a story last year. So this is not the weirdest thing I learned this week. It's just <laughs> a weird thing I learned at one time in my life, but somewhat thought recently. About it this week. But I have thought about it this week. Yes. If you know almost nothing about a cruise ship, you know that there is a lot of food, and a lot of my research had to do with that: um, storing it, transporting it, disposing of it, it going through your body, and what happens to it after that. Um, I spoke to somebody at Carnival, and they said that in an average voyage, which is six to nine days. They go through 23,000 pounds of flour. Think of how much, how many cookies you can make from like one pound of flour. That's 23,000 pounds of flour. And they also go through 231,000 pounds of pineapple, and that's pretty much, that's almost primarily for cocktails. Wait. Wow. So, and they have to bring all of that with them. Yes. So you can't just have like a shipment come in from Amazon. Totally. Like, it, exactly. T- and use pineapples. And you can't even really get it. You have to like do a lot of planning at ports too. So mm. most of the time they're storing, storing food in like ballroom sized uh, fridges and freezers uh, below the passenger decks. I mean, cold food storage alone spans thousands of square feet. Um, so that's wild to me. And they like use like trolleys and um, have this, a lot of secret sort of hidden um, escalators and elevators and things like that to, to get the food where it needs to go. So that's kind of where they keep the food. And so all the food waste that hasn't, let's say, been processed by human body um, is usually either landed as they say, shoreside, or they kind of pulp it on board and it basically goes through a macerator until it's liquid sludge and then they dry it up, and, you know, this is a quote from a cruise line engineer, when we're a certain distance from the coast, we tip it over the side and feed the fish. So this isn't like putting banana peels on, like, the tops of 231,000 pounds of pineapple <laughs> in the ocean. Basically, they, they by the time the organic mass is, like, would be going to sea, and so a lot of times they land at shoreside, as I said. By the time it, that organic mass is going to sea, it's similar, according to one of my sources, to, like, cro- coffee grounds mm. and consistency. Yeah. But with all that eating comes a lot of pooping, which is kind of mm. was, to me, always the most fascinating question whenever I was on cruise ships because everyone poops. Mm. Everyone poops, and there are so many people, and, like, you, you have a finite amount of space on, mm. a, on a ship. So this is a city, so there is a sewage farm on board And basically upon flushing vacuum section lines, like those on an airplane, like lavatory, Mm -hmm. suck the contents out of the toilet and then whip them into something known as a marine sanitation device, um, which is in or near the end room. These are big machines that basically siphon out all the water and then treat that liquid until, quote, you can drink it if you want. (laughs) And then they send that water out to sea. So we don't drink it. You don't drink it. I don't know if that's a PR thing or, or what, but... Would yeah. it be better to drink it? Like, if it is safe to drink, wouldn't it be a more... Or use it in the toilets again? Yeah. Like, why are we mm. sending it to sea? Yeah. You no, know, I mean,
0: astronauts drink their recycled pee. Yeah. yeah. And in fact, it's all... Um, Same. No, just kidding. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> <I'm>, Self-sustainable person. <laughs> I'm pretty sure the, the, the pee recycler is uh, in the, the Russian part of ISS. Oh, and, oh yeah. But,
1: we don't, right?
0: Right. But U.S. astronauts have been known to drink the recycled Russian pee. Because, like, why not?
1: Anyways, back to poop. Okay, so then they send that water out to sea. So then you got... This might be a little bit too graphic for this podcast, (laughs) but I'm sorry. Uh, Tis the nature of the beast. Um, So then you got this sort of, like, dense, sludgy material that they do not send out to sea. And it is stored in a tank that's got aerobic bacteria in it. And that bacteria go to town on the poop until... The ship hits the port, and it is offloaded. And this certainly varies, but the engineer I got to talk to said that they usually offload it about once a month. So Oh, meaning that they have enough they like storage have, space yeah. in case someone needs to poop like 10 times a day. Yeah, <laughs> and if it's like you're really drying it out, I do wonder how much mass that actually is. But also, doesn't your body mm-hmm. kind of dry it out before? you know isn't poop already only, kind of dried out only if you don't drink enough and your bowels aren't healthy yeah that's true sorry yeah <laughs> so that's my fact <laughs> okay what that's my Weird thing. there is like a norovirus and people are just like pooping everywhere and if the tank fills up do you have to like go back <laughs>
0: I don't know <laughs> I don't think that poop emergency <laughs> the
1: poop overflow no one else poop well we're full <laughs> I think in the very rare case where that happens where there's like some sort of pooping disaster it's not yeah. because the tanks are full it's because this happened in a recent year but it was because the power went out and basically oh. when the power went out all these machines that keep this city mm-hmm. functioning uh no longer work and it requires a lot of power to you know suck the poop out of toilets and also to process it in such a way as to be sufficiently and efficiently stored. So what hmm. happened? then? What did they tell people? I mean, you got to go when you got to go.
0: <laughs> Especially when you I don't have know, a I think it was just a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have heard that described as the cruise from hell. So I think God. it just went badly. Is, is how it went. But you
1: say you still would go on a cruise like, again yeah, knowing all of this about poop? and cruises and what Yeah, I mean, what's down below? Yeah. <laughs> truthfully, I pro- I would, but also like I don't know. I do think that they're kind of fun. I haven't been on one in a long time. So, you know, full disclosure, my dad actually sells cruises, so part of my <laughs> part of my like your interest in from childhood. My in- not even an obsession, but like my interest in how cruise ships work are because I have been on a lot of cruises and I have been wondering like what goes on behind the scenes mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, the more you go on them, the more you're like, how does this even work? We're in the ocean <laughs> <laughs> or on a river. And it shouldn't, it shouldn't be possible for the issue. They they wanted to do something that was like a dollhouse sort of style right, treatment. Yeah. And it was for the big machines issue. And I suggested a cruise ship just so I could get some answers, <laughs> some yeah. justification to ask some questions. And you know, unsurprisingly, a lot of uh, cruise lines were slightly reluctant to talk about things like poop, like poop, and um, and garbage, and also exhaust. Um, mm. But I actually was in my reporting. My general kind of conclusion was that the way that they process things was not as environmentally. Bad as I kind of thought it was, having mm. having no information, I had assumed that they were, they were just like like just
0: terrible. Yeah, just, just horrible, right?
1: And and it's not like they're they're great, but that human population is going to be pooping and pre- producing garbage somewhere else, right? It's, right. It's just, um, and I was I was kind of pleasantly surprised when I was learning about like all the um, developments they're doing with like exhaust scrubbers mm. and. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of trying to clean up their act, especially because there are so many, so many cruises now mm-hmm. happening at
0: once, and yeah. bigger and bigger ships,
1: and huge ships, really, f- truthfully frighteningly <laughs> big <laughs> ships, um, with like eighty-five water slides. Not really that hyperbole, but, w- but like, with several water that means slides, even more poop. Yeah, um, but also larger. Engine rooms.
0: (laughs) To To put the poop in. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Oh, man. Imagine if they made a poop-powered ship. That would be awesome. Steal my idea. (laughs) (laughs) We'll take a quick break, and then we'll be right back. Okay, pals. You love the weirdest thing I learned this week podcast. And now you can love it as a Facebook group. Share your strangest facts and read all about the offbeat and outlandish findings of other science lovers. We'll also be publishing some of the bonus info and ramblings that didn't make it into the final cut of the podcast. Just search for The Weirdest Thing on Facebook. So, Claire, you were going to tell us about a uh, weird sport fact?
1: Yes, I am. All right, so... Like I said in the teaser, it's this sport that women, apparently, or it's kind of controversial, but we think that women are tending to beat men in this. And so Mm. I'm going to kind of drag it out for you. (laughs) So people have always assumed, kind of in the history of all endurance sports, so things like cycling or marathon running and things like that, that men will always beat women. So that's been mostly what we've seen in most major marathons, even today, the top man finisher will always be about 15 minutes faster than the top female finisher. But back in like the 1990s, 1992, 93, there was like a team of researchers who were looking at sort of the trend in women's um, running and cycling and things like that. And thought, you know, over the course of the time that women have been competing, um, they've been increasing so significantly. Their times have been going down. They've just been getting so much faster that, are they gonna quickly, or eventually at least, outpace men, which we thought wasn't physiologically capable, we're, we're not physiologically capable of doing that. So here's like a little historical background, which I found really interesting, um, which I don't think that we talk about that much. The first woman to actually compete in the prestigious and famous Boston Marathon was a woman named Katherine Switzer, and that was in 1967. She actually signed up for the race as K. Switzer, and so people didn't know if she was a man or they just assumed mm-hmm. that she was a man, and so when they saw a woman out there, they actually the race officials and a bunch of spectators tried to like push her out of the race, physically, lot, physically like a, yeah. push her out. And her boyfriend actually had to like punch some people <laughs> to keep her in the race, and she finished. But it wasn't until 1972 then that um, women were actually legally or officially allowed to compete in the Boston Marathon. And at that same year, on my birthday, June 23rd, that they enacted into law the educational amendment, Title IX, which basically says that no person in the United States shall on the basis of sex be excluded from participation in any educational program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. And so that's Um, both high school and um, NCAA college sports. And it actually really was the turning point for women in sports. So in 1972, there were only 30,000 women in the entire country that participated in NCAA sports. And that's close to 170,000 men. And then in high school sports, there were just 295,000 girls in the entire country participating in sports. Um, And then today, because of Title IX, there are 2.6 million girls playing high school sports. And 150,000 in college, so it was this big, big change for yeah. for women. So along with that, there are also these increasing numbers of women participating in non-high school sports, um, and like adult amateur sports. And mm-hmm. so we had this, like all these marathons popping up, and cycling races, and things like that. And so that's kind of where the researchers were looking at. They're saying, "Oh my gosh, women are doing so well, so fast. They've only been competing for 40 years. Um, what can they do?" But It turns out that that's sort of largely been disproven for most sports, like the marathon um, and like 5Ks and cycling sports. Women tend to go about 10% slower um, than men in
0: all sports.
1: Um, It's based on a number of different factors, things like your VO2 max, which is the maximum amount of oxygen you can uh, use at one time, and um, sort of like your muscle structure and um, like bone density and things like that that sort of push men over the edge than women
0: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: but this is in all cases except for one sport which is ultra running an ultra marathon is um, anything over like a normal marathon normal marathon is 26.2 miles so an ultra marathon can be you know, 27 miles, but the majority of the races are around 50k, which is 31 miles, up to like the oh premier races, which are 100 miles. And you're running all at one time. So it's not like you sleep during it. So usually these take about like 31 hours oh to, no. to do. <laughs> so researchers are super curious. They're like, what is this about ultra marathon running that is, you know, different, like physiologically about, you know, running these long distances that women tend to um, beat them, and so the the big overarching answer is that we still don't completely know. And a big reason for that is because of almost all of the studies done on endurance sports are all done on men. I mean, mm. there are so few women athletic studies out there. Wow. Um, and so we don't know how women's menstrual cycles play in, how our hormonal fluctuations. Um, and things like that that are just so different in men than women, and we we just don't know. But um, there's been a number of increasing studies, and so what they found, which I thought was really interesting, is that women tend to have better form than men. Mm-hmm. And so when you're mm-hmm. running a five k, like Amy has done, mm-hmm. um, yep. <laughs> your form doesn't really matter as as much. Like it, the the time doesn't add up because you're just you know kind of doing an all out sprint for three point one miles. And so if you do have like a bad form. It, it doesn't add up, but if you're doing a hundred miles, that mm-hmm. form is gonna come like come more into play. And so we found through these studies where they basically look at how you're running on a treadmill or are, you know how you're just like running outside and take pictures and videos and stuff that women just tend to have better form over the long term than men. For for a hundred miles, are people a lot more prone to injury? Obviously, they must be, right? Or um, is it just that people? Amateurs don't try to run hundred miles, so they're right. less. Injuries. Yeah, so amateurs tend not to to run hundred <laughs> oh. miles at once. Usually, like you've competed in like five k's, ten k's, half full marathons before you do, but not all. But usually, it's someone who's like very much into running. Injuries are in any level of running, so I don't know if it's I don't know if it's more prone in ultra marathon running, but I would say that there's injuries throughout any. Um, so that so it's likely that the better form contributes to a faster time rather than say getting injured and then slowing down because of yeah. An so injury. I would think that this is assuming that you, you don't get injured during the race mm-hmm. and so you're. You're, you're finishing it. You're finishing those hundred miles. So the next one which I thought was really cool is fatigue ability, which is basically your exercise induced reduction in performance. So if you ran a half marathon, which is thirteen point one miles, if you have this, you know, if you haven't trained enough and you have this fatigue ability, it'll happen at around like mile eleven or twelve because you've just run for too long. Um, and you have that that factor playing in. So researchers have done studies where um, they had a group of women, a group of men kind of hold something in their arms um, and how long that women can do it versus men of, you know, maybe not the same weight, but of similar to their weight themselves. And they found that women were able to hold on to it three times longer than wow. men have. Um, and they don't really know why women have a stronger or a, not as intense fatigability than men, but um, it's something that they're like really researching into. Three times longer <coughs> is significant.
0: Yeah, that is very, <laughs> that is very much longer.
1: <laughs> mm. um, and then another factor is blood flow. So men men's muscles tend to be larger on average than women's muscles, and so when your heart pumps um all of this through they, your heart has to work harder to get to all these muscles than women and so women are just you know in that way more efficient and so again mm. when you're doing these ultra races it, it comes more into play when you're doing longer distances and so um the last one which I also thought was really cool is your mental game so just looking at sort of men's splits which are like every mile like what your time is so say you did a 5k your first mile is eight minutes your second mile is 8 15 8 30 so men are getting slower and then comparatively women when they do these ultra races their times are going down so they're doing something called negative splits whereas men are doing these positive splits and so when you do positive splits meaning you get slower over time you have an increased chance of having muscle fatigability and Mm -hmm. something called bonking, which um, Mm. you just sort of run out of energy. Um, And so they think several of these things are sort of like coming into play, but a lot of it like women's bone structure or um, sort of the amount of body fat women have compared to men and also their like hormones versus men's hormones, all of this we sort of really don't know and researchers think that all of this stuff can really come into play and it would be incredibly interesting. We just have to do a lot more studies on women athletes.
0: So one question I have, I know you're really uh, passionate about running.
1: Full disclosure, I like running. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, But I'm curious like what your take is on whether ultra marathons are like good for your body Mm -hmm. because whenever I read accounts of them from people who have run them, including people who are like, I am going to keep doing this as long as I can for the rest of my life. I love it so much. The way they describe the physical process, it reminds me of like when salmon swim upstream (laughs) and like cannibalize their bodies in order (laughs) to, to get to where they need to spawn. Like it sounds so viscerally terrible the way it is breaking your body down for energy as you run. So, on that note.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I think that's something that people tend to forget is when you are doing these 100-mile races, you are not doing, like, six-minute miles, Mm -hmm. seven-minute miles. Um, They're much slower, and it's sort of, it's like, you know, slow and steady wins the race. And um, a really cool book that sort of described this ability that all humans have is called Born to Run, and it was about the Talamahara, a, a Mexican tribe who live sort of in the Mountains in northern Mexico, and essentially what they do to hunt down their prey is simply outrun them. So if there's a deer or another animal that they're trying to kill, they'll just follow them until they for hours and hours on end until that animal just breaks down from fatigue and passes out. And at <laughs> that point, awesome. they kill them and eat them. Um, and so, but the whole point of the book was to say that we all have this ability in us to run and to run long and slow. And so perhaps ultra marathon running is more natural than um, mm. a really fast 5k or running under a four minute mile. Isn't That's that really book responsible for like the barefoot running craze yes. and like the, the weird like glove shoes? <laughs> <laughs> then, All like, that
0: awesome. is also true. <laughs> I'm skeptical of that book for that reason.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's actually really controversial what how like what we should be putting on our feet. I mean the Talamahara, like what the author said um, they just wear this sort of like leather padding to journal of just protect their feet from the elements on the ground um and so that kind of gave way to all of this sort of barefoot running but um now we have these you know um sort of like spring energy loaded. feedback spring-loaded <laughs> sneakers that are supposed to get you to under a men at least under a two-hour marathon um, and so it's i think that we just don't know enough about um the effect of what's on our feet for running I guess if you've never had supportive footwear, but like if you've Mm -hmm. grown up with supportive footwear and you are like already an adult and your, you know, your body machine is used to having arch support. Yeah, it's true. Those bones are all
0: messed up. Exactly. (laughs) So
1: will we ever, like we should just start, you know, young at barefoot running. Just never wear
0: shoes. Just never wear shoes, Mm -hmm. you know. Okay, we're going to take another short break and then we'll be right back. It's really easy to get confused by all of the tech news flying around the internet. On Last Week in Tech, the Popular
1: Science Tech team explains everything and tells you how all of these stories affect
0: your daily life. New episodes post every Monday on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, SoundCloud, and pretty much anywhere else you can listen to podcasts. We'll talk to you then. And now we're back to the weirdest thing I learned this week, and it is time for my weirdest thing. As I said in my tease, this is a story of people using a really toxic thing, knowing it was really toxic, and it's unclear why uh, they used it so much. Sheer hubris, I think, and I think there are lessons for us to learn from this today. Let's talk about the color green.
1: My favorite color. Mm-hmm. Is it really? Well, it's actually it's tied with purple. You I just like said them that. both so much. <laughs> no, no, but really, I think green is a really nice color it's color of the woods mm-hmm. color of grass nature right. things that are it alive is,
0: it's great that you mentioned that amy because it's true that we associate green with being so natural and vibrant but ironically it is a very difficult dye to make without using a lot of very unnatural processes. I mean, mm. what we're not going to have a debate about what natural versus unnatural is here, but you, <laughs> there's no like one thing in nature you can take the juice of and use to dye something else green. Mm. So for a long time, people who wanted to make green had to blend blue and yellow, uh, which people like hated because they thought that meant they weren't supposed to dye stuff green. <laughs> yeah, I had a lot of
1: pants. As a kid, that were dyed green on the knees,
0: <laughs> but it was still—I mean, like when you get a grass stain, it's like still a yellowy brown. brown. It's mm, not yeah. a nice green. It certainly does not capture the green of the grass, uh, which green. was a thing that was very frustrating to people. Let me back up a little bit. I I came to this story because uh, we had uh, an article on PopSide.com about researchers finding three poison books in their library. Um, and it was because there was this arsenic paint in them. And what I thought was really interesting is that it wasn't on there for aesthetic purposes. It was probably applied to the inside of the cover to dissuade vermin from destroying the books. But it is like creating enough, um, it's basically off-gassing it to, to the extent that they had to put these books in like a special area that was like, oh my gosh. You know, p- beware of, of arsenic stank Oh my gosh. Um, and the interesting thing there is that it just as easily could have been uh, books that were dyed with arsenic for aesthetic purposes because there was a time when we used arsenic both to kill vermin and to dye stuff. <laughs> and <laughs> nobody seemed to see the problem with that. It all starts with this guy named. Carl Wilhelm Scheele. He was a Swedish chemist. That's a name. Mm -hmm. Carl. (laughs) And he actually is now credited with discovering oxygen,
1: even though somebody
0: else got credit for it for a while. And he also described this color called Scheele's Green in 1775, made from copper arsenite, And it was the first uh, really vibrant, natural-looking green. Uh, And people were psyched when Sheel put out shields green again he knew it was poisonous but he was like everyone knows arsenic is poisonous and he was not wrong like people knew that arsenic was bad they kept it in their house for killing vermin but people did not necessarily understand that shields green had arsenic in it further they did not necessarily understand that it was levels of arsenic that were unsafe to consume
1: well okay question
0: yeah did they put
1: it on the label like, really, like, this contains...
0: Oh, nobody labeled anything. Well,
1: the problem. <laughs> right, like, so the,
0: the recipe was, was out there. Like, chemists <laughs> talked about it, but it wasn't like there was a list of ingredients on the back of every dye. And you would also get situations where people would um, order green dye and be sent Shields green because mm. that was the best green dye. And they didn't necessarily have any connection to, like, the pigment world. They had no information about what was in this stuff. So then we get into wallpaper. There's this big wallpaper craze in the UK. Uh, there were a million rolls sold in 1830 and 30 million sold by 1870, uh, this annually. Oh my gosh. So uh, 30 times the number of wallpaper rolls in uh That is not years. that long to go. And uh, at least four-fifths of them contain arsenic. Cool. according to research of the time. One Dang. one researcher actually took samples from wallpaper and was unable to find one that didn't have arsenic because even though Shields Green is the most famous example, there were other colors that had arsenic in them too. It, it was very good for making vibrant color, and mm-hmm. people were super into those colors. It's just that green was the one where there really was like no uh, rival. You, right. you couldn't replace it with something else and be like, well, this is just as good. William Morris, who uh, was a designer, among other things, and very big in the, like, pre-Raphaelite indoor arts and crafts movement. He was very much like, cover your house in vines. <laughs> um, and also was very liberal and really pushed workers' rights in his uh, family factories. He was also, uh, like, heir to an arsenic mine. Oh. So he designed tons of green wallpaper designs, uh, which was not a coincidence, I don't think. I think he was like, I can double dip here. right? Um, and Right. And so doctors were starting to write about how it was probably not a good idea to put arsenic dye in wallpaper. Uh, But William Morris was super dismissive of this, um, which, again, was like pretty out of character for him because he really championed safe conditions for workers. But when he (laughs) had um, a lot to lose financially, he apparently did not care so much. Um, And, you know, maybe was really convinced that it wasn't a problem. Apparently his house had the wallpaper in it and no one ever got sick. So he was sure there must be something else that people hadn't thought of.
1: Yeah, but, I mean, if this wallpaper was produced over decades, wouldn't the people in the factories start getting incredibly ill?
0: And wouldn't... Yeah. A lot of people worked in factories. Yeah. No, a lot of people were getting sick from painting uh, wallpaper and other you know, creating wallpaper and other goods that had uh, green dye in them. And uh, he did eventually cave to pressure and stop using shield green. But through the entirety of his life, there are examples of him complaining about how this was totally ridiculous. In um, 1815, this chemist named Leopold Gamelin had noticed. a are great names. Yeah. Yeah. Gamelin, I was like. Leopold. Oh, yeah. Um, so he noticed that rooms papered in, uh, Shills Green gave off a mouse-like odor when the paper was damp. So Ew. he he was what like, "What is a
1: mouse-like odor?" Is you like know, that's urine? a great question. Like mouse
0: urine? Yeah. I, that's a great question. I get the impression they just mean it was like musky and un- unpleasant, mm, like where mice would be, right? Right? Um, maybe something vaguely dead, unclear. Yeah. But he suspected the reason people are getting sick is because the arsenic in the wallpaper is being released into the air. Um, and up until then, there was this not totally unreasonable thought process that like, if you weren't literally eating the arsenic, maybe it was okay.
1: Yeah, smart boy, that <laughs> Leopold. <Yeah>. <laughs> like <laughs> but, if you're not smoking,
0: <laughs> right? you're just around smoke. He also noted that often people would layer <laughs> new wallpaper on top of old wallpaper, and that this situation seemed to exacerbate the problem because the old wallpaper was like moldering under and mm-hmm. was more likely to get damp and... Um, As it was like kind of Mm -hmm. rotting Mm. In 1864 The Lancet, uh, the medical journal Actually warned of the dangers Of arsenic wallpaper Um, Around that time someone Estimated that an average living room Could hold around 30,000 Milligrams of arsenic enough to Theoretically kill over 100 people If it started creating fumes uh, and this became to be known as Gossio's disease after uh, mm-hmm. Bartolomeo Gossio, another great name. <laughs> um, and it killed children as late as... There were cases in 1932, uh, which is oh wow. my around when scientists finally discovered that the culprit was uh, trimethylarsine uh, because there were enzymes in various fungi and bacteria that were replacing the oxygen atoms in the arsenic with uh, methyl groups. So it, it was this... Um, it was this decomp reaction happening when it was damp and, and there were microbes that could um, thrive in there. And so it was around this time, you know, kind of late 1800s, early 1900s, that people were like, we really have to stop putting arsenic in everything. <laughs> William Morris was like, Enough. fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's just really interesting to me because, again, there was no point in Shields Green's history that we didn't know that arsenic was toxic. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, It it was just that it was a good product in terms of providing what people wanted from it. Mm -hmm. And the scientists who created it really did think that the risks were negligible in typical use case, meaning not literally eating it. Um, So they were not aware of the fact that it could you know, create these gases that could kill you. Mm -hmm. And they thought that it was enough to assume that people knew there was arsenic in the thing and that they shouldn't eat it, not realizing that people were going to end up inadvertently ingesting it. And especially that, you know, the marginalized people who were working in factories who had no choice about being exposed to, you know, dust and perhaps licking paintbrushes. Etc. Every day that those people were going to be, uh, you know, really heavily exposed to arsenic. So
1: why do you think we waited so long? Then, like, what was the deal? Like, why
0: there was money to be yeah, made? Yeah, and I also think that there was a lot of like it was easy to pretend that it could be something else mm-hmm. um, because there were doctors who figured this out very early on and who were very vocal about it. You know, there were there were doctors calling for. Uh, arsenic-based pigments to be banned. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, people wanted to buy green wallpaper, and other people wanted to sell it to them. And there was kind of enough reasonable doubt that it just went on for a really long time.
1: I just keep thinking about how once I my parents paid me $40 when I was a teenager to take off, like, 10 layers of wallpaper, <laughs> and, like... I definitely understand why you'd want
0: to just put more wallpaper on, <laughs> on top of the wallpaper. Wall and then, like, then, it that just kills you. That stinks. <laughs> <laughs> An interesting connection to me is that um, women were also ingesting and putting arsenic on their face oh, yeah, around yeah, the same that was time. And also dresses, right? Yes, I think so there was
1: that Jezebel story at some point. Maybe y- not.
0: No, there. I I think there have been um, there have been a few articles on the subject, but there, this dye was also used in clothing, um, and it wouldn't like outright kill you, but you could definitely get like skin rashes from it. And so the question is, you know, why did people keep wearing uh, shields green clothes? And it's because it was, it was the fashion. It mm-hmm. was the fashion, and it was it wasn't like people didn't realize they were getting skin rashes.
1: Yeah, and there's a lot of stuff in our. Um, Cosmetics that could also not be good for us. Yeah,
0: modern cosmetics are like basically totally unregulated. But it Mm -hmm. does kind of, I I do kind of love that we sit there. It's easy for us to sit here going like, how could people keep using arsenic wallpaper? Mm -hmm. But like Sears and Robic was literally selling a product called Dr. Rose's Arsenic Complexion Wafers, which were wafers you ate. People were aware that arsenic was toxic and women were eating it um, to make their skin paler uh i and learned also that
1: like i i think there's a lot of thinking that you can use stuff that's bad for you to improve your life or even your body in some capacity right and like i think that, that 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 thought is still very common
0: oh yeah and yeah sears and robux uh arsenic wafers were advertised as perfectly harmless and i guess the lie being spun there was that they were like such a low amount of arsenic that it wasn't the same as the arsenic that you were using to literally kill rats in your home. There's a lot to think about there uh in terms of consumer safety and um the things we buy because a, a lot of people don't realize that cosmetics are not regulated by the FDA mm-hmm. and uh certainly it's not like the whole industry is full of like bad faith actors like they're it's not like every product that's out there is horrible for you by any means, but there are certainly, uh, I'm sure, I am 100% sure that there are, are things that we don't think twice about using today that one day will be like, but you knew it was poisonous. Back <laughs> like, in the 2010s, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> these women were just slapping all kinds of crap on their faces.
1: <laughs> and it was completely unregulated. <laughs>
0: Well, what do we think the weirdest thing we learned this week was? Mm-hmm. I think the the ultra marathon uh, fact was was pretty wild.
1: Yeah, I, I cool. would agree with that. I mean, so is the arsenic. I stuff, know. Though. I'm I'm <laughs> going with arsenic. It's really like, <laughs> I, I mean, it's I can't really mind blowing. I like my own fact too, but yeah, the arsenic one just has so many implications for even cosmetics and and drugs now, and just
0: consumer awareness that I think is so important. Hmm. I try to bring. Timely weird facts. It's true. (laughs) Mm -hmm. If they're not about like dead people or sex magic, I wanted to cover an issue of the day.
1: But also running is fun. Yes.
0: We should all do it. (laughs) Well, I don't actually think running is fun, but I agree with the sentiment that everyone (laughs) should try. (laughs) (laughs) The weirdest thing I learned this week is a popular science podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, SoundCloud, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other weirdos find the show. You can buy our merch, including Weirdest Thing t-shirts, tote bags, and mugs at popscye.threadless.com. Our theme music was produced by Billy Cadden. Our editor is Jason Letterman. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos.